0: the Lord, everyone. What a fitting song for our subject today. Thank you for standing and worshiping. You may be seated. Welcome to Sunday morning Bible study. And uh, I have been looking forward uh, to this particular lesson that we're going to launch today, uh, a series uh, that we're going to uh, come in and out of over the next several months, and uh, we'll leave it for a while and come back to it. Uh, but uh, I felt very passionate about it, and we're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. Now, uh, today we're going to be doing some preliminary uh, overview and, and uh, launching into some uh, preliminary thoughts on the book of Leviticus Uh, But I want to just kind of inform you, for those that are uh, following along with notes and things of that nature, uh, we're not going to be looking at the entire book in the same way that Pastor French has been looking at the book of Hebrews, for example. How many have enjoyed the study of the book of Hebrews? What a riveting and tremendous series that has been. But Pastor has been doing what we sometimes refer to as uh, exegesis, which means that he goes verse by verse, and he covers uh, every verse, every word within the book of Hebrews, and he's uh, one of the great Bible teachers when it comes to that kind of teaching. Uh, For the book of Leviticus, we will not be looking at every single verse and every single word. If we did that, we'd probably be uh, looking at about a six-month Bible study, so we're not going to be able to do that. But uh, we are going to look at several key verses and look at the overview of the entire book. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn from the book of Leviticus. Now, I realize when, uh, as I've prayed about this, as I've studied it for myself, as I've thought about it, I realize that the book of Leviticus is probably not your go-to book of the Bible. Now, I know that most of you here, I, I realize my audience, this is Sunday morning, and so this is, uh, uh, this is the folks who really love the Word of God, and, uh, and I realize that most of you have probably read the book of Leviticus. Uh, how many have ever done a, a yearly Bible reading plan of some kind, where you just read through the whole Bible? Leviticus is one of those books of the Bible that if we're not careful, sometimes we just kind of read it, skim it and fill our quota, so to speak, and then we move on to a more exciting book of the Bible in our minds, like, uh, for example, uh, people who uh, enjoy the Old Testament will often uh, quote from Psalms or the Proverbs. And if if you're a prophecy aficionado, you probably enjoy the book of Ezekiel or Daniel and perhaps the book of Genesis. But many people skip over uh, Leviticus, or they don't read it carefully. Another book that's like that is the Book of Numbers. Anybody ever struggled to get through the Book of Numbers before? Uh, for me, in school, numbers, math, anything like that, census taking, all of that, that was my least favorite uh, subject in school. And so the book of Numbers becomes tedious for me. I, I catch myself kind of having to be careful. And many people, Have discounted the Old Testament. But the Bible works as a cohesive unit. I think sometimes in our minds we we make the mistake of of separating uh, the Old Testament from the New in the sense that we don't recognize that they work together. Did you know that it's one book? It's the Word of God, all the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. Now we realize that we live in a new covenant. Can everyone say that with me? A new covenant? We live in a new covenant in the New Testament era, but that does not discontinue or discount or do away with the relevancy of the Old Testament. In fact, I think one of the primary reasons that many modern Christians are steeped in false doctrine and have all kinds of theological trouble is because they do not grasp or understand the concepts of the Old Testament. You cannot understand the New Testament. You cannot understand the fullness of the New Testament until you understand the fullness of the Old Testament and how they work together in tandem. All of the Old Testament points towards Jesus. Can you say praise the Lord? And so you need the Old Testament. Now, uh, we're going to do a little, uh, a little thinking here. Uh, how many are going to put on your big boy thinking cap with me this morning? If you just came for cotton candy, this is not the lesson for you. you can, there's the three-year-old class right upstairs. There's the, uh, there's the six-year-old class. There's the 10-year-old class. They, they might do something. Uh, if you're not ready to think, you might enjoy that class a little more. But we're going to dig a little deep today. And, uh, and so how many want to be spiritually mature and dig deeper into the Word of God? All right, so I want to talk to us about uh, the three laws of the Bible, the three types of law. And they're displayed first in the Old Testament, and then they're carried into the New Testament. And we're doing this so that we can understand the book of Leviticus as we go through it. The first type of law that we see played out in the Bible is ceremonial law. Can everyone say ceremonial? And this type of law relates to Israel's worship. The book of Leviticus is full of ceremonial law. And the law pointed forward to Jesus Christ, and it was no longer necessary after the Lord's resurrection. And uh, and even though we're not bound to ceremonial law any longer, uh, the principle behind ceremonial law—that is, to worship and love God—it still applies to our lives. And so, there are still principles. Associated with ceremonial law that we need in our lives. The second law is civil law. Can you say civil law? And this was law that directed Israel's daily living. Now remember, they were a young, budding nation. They had been in captivity for over 400 years in Egypt, and God delivered them from Egypt. They came out, they went into the wilderness, they were going to form a nation, and it was going to be a theocracy. In other words, It was a nation whose laws came directly from God. Not just their moral laws, which is the third law we're about to talk about in some detail, but their civil law, their penal code, came directly from God. How many think it'd be a good thing if God gave us our laws? One of the problems we have in America is we have way too many man made regulations and laws. And we have strayed from biblical law. Now, originally, United States of America was founded primarily upon the concepts of biblical civil law. I was reading just uh, a few days ago about the Salem witch trials. Anybody ever heard of the Salem witch trials? We put to death about, uh, about 40 witches here uh, in the United States, or, or maybe they weren't witches. Nobody really knows, but Uh, And and it was really a tragic thing the way we did it and uh, America gets a lot of uh, criticism over that now what people won't tell you is uh, In Europe they put to death over 400,000 witches in their witch trials or people that they were accusing of being witches wasn't necessarily true a travesty of human history and uh, Now I'm all again. I'm against witchcraft anybody against witchcraft I'm 100% against witchcraft, but I don't think you should throw people in the water, and if they don't float, put them to death. Is that okay? <laughs> Some of y'all are looking at me like, throw them in that water. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it was a terrible thing. And it was a preacher who went to a, a federal judge, and he told the judge, he said, listen, this, the, the way that you are conducting these trials is not biblical. And the judge was a member of this pastor's church. And he looked at that judge and he said, you need to repent because you are unlawfully and unbiblically putting innocent people to death and you need to stop it right now. And did you know that judge stood up in front of that church and he said, listen, I repent before God and I repent before men, I have sinned before God, and I've sinned in my country, and I'm sorry, and that's the day that the, that the witch trials stopped in the United States of America. It went on for many years in Europe. You know why? Because the United States was founded upon the Word of God and the civil law of God. And so much of the civil law, even though uh, we are no longer a theocracy, And Jesus made it clear that you're to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give unto God that which is God's. And so even Jesus made a distinction between the separation of church and state in a New Testament era. In other words, the church was not just for the Jews. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you glad that Gentiles can be grafted into the body of Christ? And so Jesus said the church is no longer going to be a a city-state, a theocracy, confined to one nation with our civil laws. The church is going to cross boundaries. It's going to cross borders. It's going to cross cultures. It's going to be a worldwide religion, a worldwide faith. And so the civil law that bound the, uh, the Israelites is not necessarily entirely binding to us. But the third law is the moral law. Everyone said the moral law. And moral laws are direct commands from God. And, uh, of course, the most common example are the Ten Commandments. Uh, We think of those as being moral law. And the moral law reveals the nature and the will of God. And they still apply to us today. Go ahead and tap your heart and say, "It, it still applies to me today. And so when the Old Testament said, thou shalt not commit adultery, that was a moral law. And so in the New Testament era, we are still prohibited from committing adultery. Can you say praise the Lord? But there are many Christians. Now, you you may wonder why I'm harping on this for a while. There are many modern Christians who do not believe that any of the Old Testament laws of morality apply to New Testament Christians. Everybody. Heard someone talk about just, just being free in grace? What they're saying is that Old Testament morality no longer applies to me in a New Testament era. And, uh, and that's a very, very dangerous, and of course it is false completely, and it does not reconcile with the Word of God. The moral law still applies to us today. Now let's look at this a little bit deeper. I'll take you to the next slide. And I'd like to quote to you from an article Uh, called Aggressive Sanctification by Mike Fabarez, and he says this, confusion between justification, everyone said justification, and sanctification, everyone said sanctification, we're going to break down these definitions in just a moment here, is often made worse by a failure to distinguish and or rightly apply the New Testament passages which have the ceremonial law of the Old Testament in view, from those passages which are addressing the moral law of God. In other words, what he's saying is that many people, when they're reading the New Testament, for example, if you read the writings of Paul, many times he makes reference to being set free from the law, and in almost every instance, he's talking about the ceremonial law. For example, he was arguing with uh, with uh, early church Jewish Christians who were uh, who were still arguing that they should abstain from. Uh, from certain types of meat and from certain kinds of food. And there were even there were even uh, early New Testament Christians who were uh, saying things, for example, like, uh, we, we won't eat foods that taste good. Uh, how many would like your pastor to get up and preach, you can't eat food that tastes good? Because it might be too closely associated with the sin of gluttony, and you might enjoy it too much. And they they viewed that as, as a, a dangerous and an unholy thing to do. And so Paul was addressing all of these issues of, of very strict Jewish sects who were exactly right in many respects when they were under the Old Testament ceremonial law. But Paul was saying, no, 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 we're under a new covenant now. The ceremonial law, the civil law, has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But the moral law still applies. Nobody spent more time in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul defending the moral laws of God, if you read his writings. And so, but you have to be careful, and that's why you hear many uh, churches fall into false doctrine, and they say, well, we've been set free from the law, so now we can sin all we want to because we're living under grace. No, no, no. They have not distinguished the moral law from the ceremonial law. And it's very important for mature Christians who want to be sound doctrinally to understand when in the New Testament the writer is referring to ceremonial law and when he's referring to moral law. And so this is important for a Christian to do. Now let's break down some definitions. Are y'all still awake? Y'all okay? Anyone want to run to the 10-year-old class yet? All right, here we go. We're going to talk about justification. Everyone said justification. You're going to struggle to understand anything in the book of Leviticus until you're familiar with the definitions of these terms. Justification is the process of becoming righteous or just in the eyes of God. And in the New Testament era, it's because of the redemptive work of Christ. And we're given a new nature. Everyone said a new nature at the new birth. And we become justified before God. Now, listen, justification is an instantaneous work at the new birth experience, and it leads to sanctification. So when you are justified, it leads you to sanctification. When you repent of your sins, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, when you're filled with the Holy Ghost, we call that the new birth. And he puts his spirit within you, and you are justified in the spirit. But it doesn't stop there. It leads you to sanctification. Everyone said sanctification. Sanctification is often translated in the King James Version as holiness. And while sanctification and holiness have almost the same meanings, sanctification is referencing the ongoing process of living out a lifestyle of inward and outward holiness before God. Everyone said inward holiness and outward holiness. We're to be holy on the inside. We're to have holiness in our hearts, and we're to be holy on the outside. In other words, uh, you can have dresses down to your toes, and you can have sleeves down to your fingernails, and you can look good. and, And ladies, you can have long, beautiful, uncut hair, but if you're full of malice, hatred, bitterness, gossip, you're unholy. Because holiness is not just outward and it's not just inward. It encompasses the entire spirit. And so we're to be holy on the inside and holy on the outside. That's why Jesus looked at the Pharisees. Many people uh, mistakenly uh, use the Pharisees in a a wrong context because they say, well, you don't want to be like a Pharisee. You don't want to be holy on the outside like Pharisee. That's a pharisaical spirit. You know, they'll say that about holiness churches. They'll say, you've got, a, you've got the spirit of the Pharisees. But Jesus was not rebuking them for their outward holiness. Jesus was not rebuking them for their outward holiness. Not one time. What did he say? He said, you know, on the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're good on the outside. He, he wasn't admonishing them because they were outwardly holy and fasting he wasn't admonishing them because they were praying he was admonishing them because on the inside they were filthy and full of lies and full of deceit and full of pride and full of self-righteousness and jesus wasn't saying don't be holy on the outside jesus was saying if you're going to be holy on the outside you better have holiness on the inside as well can i get a praise the lord that'd be a good place to say praise the Lord. And so we need to have complete holiness. That's the process or the ongoing work of sanctification. It's the the lifestyle. I, I know that's an oversimplification and pastor, forgive me, I'm oversimplifying it here a little bit, but sanctification is a lifestyle of holiness. And so when you're justified at the new birth, it leads you to a lifestyle of holy living inward and outward it is not as many churches teach an instantaneous work of the spirit at salvation it's not it's the process begins and it's a twofold process sanctification and uh, and i have the scriptures listed here of course it's leviticus so it's relevant to what we're talking about today leviticus 11 and 44 uh it sanctification takes our responsibility and what we do in obedience to God. And it's also the work of God. So it's a twofold process where God imparts his righteousness to us and we walk in obedience to that righteousness and we walk in submission to the spirit. Sanctification is when we are completely submitted to the will and the spirit of God. It's when, as Paul said, we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. That's what sanctification is. Now, let me take you to the next slide, and we're going to continue very quickly with our discussion of the moral law of God. It's very important that we understand this. I'm, I'm amazed at how many people don't understand God's moral law. These laws are not about religious calendars or criminal restitution. I'm reading here from Equipped Conference Materials, a fantastic article on sanctification and the moral law, and it says this. These laws are not about religious calendars or criminal restitution. They do not contain the symbolism of clean and unclean foods or fibers. They are not about incarceration or the reign of earthly kings. These rules are expressed from Genesis to Malachi and teach us what is moral, ethical, honest, virtuous, and righteous. Unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, we cannot look at just one passage to find them. They are not contained in one list or a single book of the Old Testament. They punctuate the narratives of Scripture, and they can be extracted from the wise counsel that unfolds within each installment of God's inspired library. How many love all the Word of God? Each of these rules reflects something of God's good character. They are an expression of His moral virtue. They give us an articulated standard of what is right. These are laws we love. How many love the law of God? because of what they embody and reflect. They are never obsolete and must never be put aside. And because these laws are the guide for Christian living, we find them repeated, emphasized, and reinforced on just about every page of the New Testament. Keeping this brief summary of the three distinguishable aspects of the Old Testament rules in mind, we can begin to see why it is possible to mistakenly downplay or even dismiss the moral rules of God when we read a New Testament passage without first determining which category of law the passage is talking about. And because moral laws and ceremonial laws are both abbreviated in the Old Testament and the New Testament with the word law, we must be careful to always examine context. One cannot simply quote a New Testament passage about the law if one hasn't clearly determined which kind of law the passage has in view. How many want to obey all of the moral laws of God? If God said that homosexuality is wrong in the Old Testament, homosexuality is wrong in the New Testament because it is a timeless moral law, a timeless moral principle of God's Word. And by the way, the book of Leviticus is one of the primary books of the Bible that deals with with that issue. Now, I'm going to take you to some key verses. If you have your Bible, grab them. We're going to jump into Leviticus here, and we only have a few minutes, I'm going to move very quickly. The first key verse in Leviticus that I just want us to get a taste of is Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Everyone said the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Everyone said an atonement. This is a key scripture in the Bible, one of the most important scriptures you'll read in the Old Testament because it is one of the first scriptures that begins to point towards the necessity of blood and sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And all of that was pointing forward to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. All of this was a type and shadow of what was going to be fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ Jesus, the Messiah. It's a powerful, powerful verse. And Leviticus 20 and 7 says this this is powerful Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy. For I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Do you see the two-part aspect of sanctification? First, God says, sanctify yourself. Did you catch that? And then he said, I am the Lord, which sanctifies you. Which is it? It's both. You have to walk in sanctification and obedience and submission to the word and the law of God. And when you submit yourself to the law And the commands and the word of God, then God imparts his righteousness to you and he sanctifies you. And so you've got to be submitted and you have to be obedient to the word and he will sanctify you. He'll impart his righteousness, his holiness to you. Now, we're going to go to the next slide and we're going to look at the setup for uh, the book of Leviticus. Now, number one, you need to know that Moses was the inspired writer of the book of Leviticus And it was written about 1440 B.C. Uh, This was very shortly after the Hebrews had been delivered from bondage in Egypt. And Leviticus is important for many reasons, but uh, there's three vital areas that Leviticus talks about and uh, that we need to understand. Number one is atonement. Everyone said atonement. And we're about to look at a definition for atonement. Second is sacrifice. And the third is holiness. And without these backgrounds and concepts, we could never understand what Jesus did at Calvary. And we would really struggle to understand sanctification and holiness in the New Testament. Because remember, the Bible is the complete Word of God. Old Testament and New, it's the complete Word of God. Now, I want you to look at this little graph that I pulled from the uh, Compact Bible Handbook. It's a recommendation I gave you uh, several months ago. And I just took it right out of that book. And you see the book of Leviticus broken down uh, into parts and focus and division. But do you see right here where it says uh, the first part of the book outlines the way to God and the laws of acceptable approach to God? Does everybody see that? And so you could not approach God without a sacrifice. That's the first thing we learn in the book of Leviticus. And in, in the New Testament era, and I'm oversimplifying again, But in the New Testament era, you cannot approach God without presenting your body as a living sacrifice. You cannot approach God without the new birth, without uh, repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's how we approach God, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's the way to God. Jesus said, no man cometh to the Father but by me talking about the gospel and so in the new testament era the gospel is the way to approach god it's the way to enter back into fellowship or relationship with god without it you can't have a relationship with god but then the second portion of leviticus is sanctification how many see that sanctification the walk with god everyone said holiness sanctification it's the walk with god and it's the laws of continued. Everyone said continued, continued fellowship with God. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it was made clear to them that you approach God through sacrifice, but you continue to walk with God through sanctification. And so when you're saved, it's not over. When you're justified, it's not over. When you, when you obey the gospel, it's not over. You pick yourself up you turn away from sin, and you continue to walk in ongoing sanctification. This would be a good place to say amen. And so it's a lifestyle of holiness. That's what it's teaching us. And we see that type and shadow in the book of Leviticus. Now, going to the next slide, I want us to look at a definition for the word atonement. Atonement is a word mentioned uh, numerously in the book of of Leviticus. And uh, some of you that are are scholars and, and studious, you're thinking, why is he doing that? But I just have a sneaking suspicion. If I were to bring this microphone randomly to people and ask for the definition of atonement, that some of us would really struggle. So we're going we're gonna to do it for those of us that might not know exactly what atonement means. Atonement is from the Hebrew meaning to cover over sin. And in the Greek meaning reconciliation. The term is used to signify the satisfaction of divine judgment for the sins of mankind by animal sacrifice in the Old Testament and by the death of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Some break the English word into three parts to express a simple truth at one mint. And it's only through God's atoning grace and mercy and our obedience to his word that we can have a relationship of at one mint with God. We need God's atonement Uh, in order for our sins to be covered. Are you glad your sins were covered by the blood of Jesus? If, If it hadn't been for the blood, where would I be? If it hadn't been for the blood, if he hadn't washed my sins away, hallelujah. I love that old song. Thank God for the blood that washes white as snow. It covers as it were, and it washes me white as snow. Praise the Lord. Now we'll take you to the next slide. Leviticus naturally divides into five units. Number one, laws about sacrifice, laws about priestly ordination, physical and moral impurities, physical and moral holiness, and laws about vows. Now, we're going to quickly look at the first uh, section here, laws about sacrifice, And, uh, and I'll take you to the next slide here and give you one more overview before we take ourselves to the first chapter of Leviticus. Number one, Leviticus gives the roadmap to holiness. The book is addressed to believers. Exodus ended by giving attention to where God should be worshipped. Everyone said the tabernacle. Leviticus focuses on how God should be worshipped. Everyone said how God should be worshipped. Exodus emphasized location, and in Leviticus, it emphasizes an attitude and proper relationship which can only be obtained through holiness. More than any other Old Testament book, Leviticus calls Israel... a holy life. The word holiness or sanctification is used 150 times in the book of Leviticus alone. That's about 20% of all occurrences in the Old Testament. That's staggering. And you would be mistaken mistaken to believe that these holiness commands were only for the priests. Only four of the 27 chapters are exclusively for the priesthood. The remainder is addressed to all people, a holiness for all and out of reach of none. And in a New Testament era, holiness is not just for your pastor. Holiness is not just for the ministry. Holiness is not just for people who want to go a little further. Holiness is for everyone. Holiness isn't just right for a few who are a little extra sanctified, (laughs) a little extra dedicated. No, 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 no. Holiness is a requirement for all of the people. That'd be a good place to say praise the Lord. Now, we'll go to the next slide. We just have a few minutes here, and I want us to read Leviticus 1 and verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. In his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, Let him offer a male without blemish. Everyone said without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Now, let me give you a couple notes here. Number one, I want you to notice that God did not speak to Moses concerning the sacrifices until after the building of the tabernacle had been completed. Obedience. Listen, this might be the most important thing I say. Obedience is the key that unlocks the door to further revelation. Well, I've been seeking the Holy Ghost, but I've not been baptized in Jesus' name. If you won't be obedient to the Word of God, you probably won't receive the Holy Ghost. Obedience is the key that opens the door to further revelation. Well, there's things I don't understand, there's things that God won't reveal to me. I'm struck. You know why? Because there's things that you know to do. And you're not doing them. I said there are things that you know to do and you're not doing it. And God will not unlock the door to further power, anointing, and revelation until you are obedient to what he has already clearly instructed you to do. I can't get deliverance, preacher. You haven't been obedient to the word of God. I can't get victory, preacher. You haven't been obedient to what you already know to do. I can't get joy, preacher. You're not being obedient to what God already told you to do. You will never receive further revelation and further instruction from God until you do what he already told you to do. Noah had no clue what rain looked like, sounded like, or felt like. The world had never seen rain. He just knew that God told him to get busy building an ark, and he built an ark, and sure enough, he experienced a flood. There are things you will never experience in God, and there are things that will never come to pass in your life, in your relationship with God, until you are first obedient to what God told you to do yesterday. Stop asking God for a fresh revelation until you've obeyed the revelation He already gave you. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. All right. Now... Ancient culture understood that you never approach a superior and you certainly never approach God without a gift. Everyone said a gift or an offering. It would have been unthinkable in ancient times to approach God without an offering of some kind. And yet I see people come to church all the time. They withhold their praise. They withhold their finances. They withhold their worship. They withhold their thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so you you better not come into the presence of God. You better not draw near to God. That's what the word offering means in the Hebrew. It means to to bring near. And so you better not come near the presence of God unless you're going to give him something. And you might be saying, well, it's just money you're preaching about. No, no, you should bring your offerings and you should bring your tithes. That's very, very important. But you better offer up your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reason service. Praise God. And so you better bring yourself. The first thing you bring to God as an offering is yourself. And if you run from the house of God, you are not presenting yourself. People who aren't faithful to the house of God, they're refusing to offer themselves. People who are unwilling to be obedient to a lifestyle of holiness, they are not offering themselves as a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Sister Latta, it's so good to see you this morning. Look at Sister Latta being faithful to the house of God in sickness and in health. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let me see. Am I out of time? Stand with me. I'll make this last point. I want you to notice that there's a major contrast between the kinds of animals that God demanded as sacrifices and the kinds of animals that the pagan religions at that time offered. God was very clear. He said, you can only bring clean animals, Uh, animals who are without spot and without blemish, Uh, mostly animals who were not carnivorous. They were grass-feeding or wheat-feeding animals. They were peaceful animals, and they were to be perfect. And this was a sharp contrast to pagan worship of that day, where they would often offer things like vultures, and they would offer uh, ferocious animals up in sacrifice. And, and, And one of the reasons for that is because godly sacrifice symbolized innocence, purity, and righteousness. Why? Because they always pointed towards Jesus. Jesus did not come as a lion, even though in the Old Testament he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, And so he didn't say offer up a lion. He said offer up a lamb because when I come as the Messiah, I'm going to be a lamb. I'm going to be a lamb willingly led to the slaughter. And I'll bear your own sins in my body. And I will be the perfect sacrifice for your sins. All of this, all of this pointed towards a gentle lamb that was slain for our sins. Can we lift up our hands And just thank the Lord for the blood of Jesus. Could we do that right now? Oh, God, we're so glad that we can come boldly into the throne of grace this morning. I'm so thankful that the veil was torn at Calvary, God. I'm so glad that we can enter into your presence without fear, God. I'm glad that we can feel your Shekinah glory in this place. And we worship you. We worship you. We worship you. Would you clap your hands to the Lord and give him praise this morning? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Somebody ought to just speak the name of Jesus very quickly. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Amen.